Why X Matters is recorded live in the CJMU studios in downtown Winnipeg on Treaty 1 territory, the original lands of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Red River Métis. Welcome to Why X Matters, where we talk to a panel of industry-leading experts about why trust in institutions, sense of belonging, and civic engagement have all been on the decline. In this four-part podcast series, we are unpacking the Winnipeg Foundation's 2022 Vital Signs Report, and we're sparking conversations about how we can work together to restore trust, heal divides, and inspire change. I'm your host and moderator, Nolan Bicknell. We have some wonderful guests here today. We're talking about the environment and how the impacts of human activity and sustainability practices are core to the long-term health of the planet and its inhabitants. This episode will highlight the voices in the sector who are working to make a change and to discuss, and we're gonna discuss how the climate emergency needs to be on the election agenda. Our first panelist, I'm here with Julia Simone Rutgers, who is Manitoba's first dedicated climate reporter, covering, covering environmental issues across the Prairie Province through a unique partnership between the Winnipeg Free Press and the Narwhal. Before taking on this new collaboration, Julia Simone was a general assignment reporter with the Free Press and Star Metro Halifax, as well as served as the first ever writer in residence at the Walrus Magazine and collected bylines in the Globe and Mail, the Coast, and the Discourse. Julie Simone, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. It's our pleasure. We're going to have a good chat. I can't wait to get into it. But before we get into it, our second guest, I would like to welcome Marshall Birch, who works as the Indigenous Community Engagement Coordinator for Nature United's Manitoba Boreal Program, where he supports communities in northern Manitoba to preserve to pursue goals related to stewardship of their territories. As a Métis citizen, Marshall strongly believes in the importance of Indigenous-led conservation work to address key issues that we face today, such as climate change and biodiversity loss. Welcome, Marshall. Hello, thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. And our final panelists for today's discussion is Ron Thiessen. Ron has been in leadership roles with Canadian nature con conservation organizations for over 30 years, and his post as executive director of CPAWS Manitoba began in 2006. CPAWS stands for Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society of Manitoba. Working with Indigenous nations, governments, and stakeholders, Ron has actively contributed to the establishment of 24 parks and protected areas in Manitoba, which combined total over 3 million hectares of healthy lands and waters conserved for future generations of people and wildlife alike. Welcome to the show, Ron. Thank you. Great to be here. And also a big thanks to the Winnipeg Foundation for their involvement. Absolutely. Shout out to the foundation. So the Winnipeg Foundation's, the Winnipeg Foundation put out a, a vital signs report in 2022, and it found that Winnipeg's concern, Winnipeg's concerns about climate change have nearly doubled since the beginning of 2022, with 56% of people surveyed saying they are increasingly anxious about it. I'm guessing with uh, the fires of 2023, that number has only gone up. So looking at industry landscapes, uh, first to Julia Simone, have you seen an increase in anxiety in the people that you're talking to? And what is that like? What are some of the conversations like when you're reporting on these environmental issues in our province? Yeah, I mean, the short answer is is yes, right? I think, um, you know, you bring up the wildfires and and that has been such a tangible impact of climate change. Uh, there was some polling from Angus Reid recently that was showing, you know, 50%, more than 50% of Manitobans have stayed inside more this summer. One in five have seen health problems get worse because of wildfire smoke. Like these impacts of climate change are becoming tangible 
in a way that is, you know, nearly impossible to ignore. Uh, and I think that that has contributed significantly to anxieties increasing, you know, over the course of this last year, I've been speaking to families in, you know, Springfield, Manitoba, where there's uh, a proposed silica sand mine project. And, you know, it's families who've spent their whole lives working in energy projects mm -hmm. and these major industries where maybe they weren't so concerned about climate change through their careers. Mm -hmm. But now, you know, they've experienced droughts. They're worried about their water quality. They're worried that these impacts that they're starting to see, these increasingly unpredictable and extreme impacts, could start to affect them, could start to creep up on their backyards. And that, you know, political affiliation or belief aside, that that's a threat to, you know, your your sense of well-being and, and your day-to-day -day life. And that, I think, has really contributed to that increase in anxiety. Um, yeah, it's 70, 75% of Manitobans think climate should be part of all policy considerations. Like that, I think, really highlights how many people are thinking about this as as a major concern right now. Yeah, and it's only increasing, absolutely. Yeah. Things, it, it's it's unfortunate to say, but a lot of people don't really consider things until it affects them personally in, in a lot of ways. And, and yeah. now it's just showing that as soon as you go outside, you can you can smell it, you can taste it, you can feel it. And especially with those with compromised lungs or pulmonary issues, it's, it's only gonna get worse. So Ron, um, 30 years sort of talking about these things and seeing things, but just give me a little snapshot of the last five years of your work and, and how things have ramped up and how the discourse has changed a little, a little bit with your work with CPAWS. Well, it's certainly been amazing. I'll just start with the last 30 years. Very quickly, I'll touch on that and say that I remember 30 years ago talking about climate change to people and environmental degradation, and it was very much a new topic, something people didn't understand. And climate change is still confusing. Let's face it, it's an overwhelming subject, and uh, uh, there's many uh, facets to it. Um, but certainly within the last five years, I've, I've noticed um, certainly an increase uh, in my staff uh, in terms of their anxiety, myself included um, you know the threat of an uncertain future um, is uh, can cause anyone anxiety I think and you know we, we do outreach tables throughout the city where we talk to Manitobans we've certainly seen an increased anxiety there um, and also we do school programming daycare programming and we're seeing increased anxiety there and I'll I'll, I'll note that particularly that uh, especially what we're finding with uh, older children and younger adults that their anxiety in regard to eco anxiety climate anxiety is really increasing because uh, they're going to be disproportionately affected and uh, once again that that anxiety regarding an uncertain future can can cause someone to have some perilous thoughts unfortunately no kidding yeah, we'll get into sort of solutions and some of the things that are at least giving some hope in the, in, in such a uh, difficult and hopeless situation in a lot of cases. But Marshall, last word to you on this particular topic are, is what Julia, Simone, and Ron are saying, does that resonate with you? With you? You're doing a lot of work in the north. Um, are communities up there feeling the same thing or, or what are you seeing on, on the ground floor? Yeah, so, so my work I do with Nature United is for the, the, the Manitoba Boreal Program and it's focused on uh, supporting indigenous communities in the north on uh, kind of uh, realizing their their stewardship and conservation goals. And so we're kind of dealing with a, a specific area, a specific demographic. Um, and I think what's important to notice is that environmental issues have always been front and center for indigenous communities. Um, the connection to the land is, is central to their, their culture. Um, but definitely, I think what I've seen more recently is um, 
increased involvement in, in the world of, of conservation and increased support for that. Mm -hmm. So there's more funding going out to things like Indigenous Protection Conserved Areas, to Guardians programs, to basically ways to get communities leading this work because realistically the, the people who live on the land, have lived there for thousands of years, are the people who are going to know how to protect the land better than you know someone coming in from Toronto or even Winnipeg and telling you what to do in the north. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I mean, that being said, you know, things like forest fires, which are not just, you know, here in Winnipeg, we're seeing the smoke, it's terrible, but up north, you're getting forest fires knocking at your back door, you're getting, um, you know, evacuations, um, impacts on species loss, impacts on their access to their lands to harvest uh, are all being impacted strongly. So that's increasing concern and action. It's uh, degrading lands and waters and the, and the species and, and what could be called resources they rely on uh, to, you know, continue their traditional practices. Um, and I think as, as we're aware here, it's generally considered that northern and remote communities are going to be impacted stronger by the impacts mm -hmm. of climate change and environmental degradation. So I don't think that's, that's lost on any of these folks either. Um, what I've seen is a lot of, a lot of interest, particularly in adaptation, um, seeing that these impacts are going to come, they are already coming, and that they need to start focusing on how they can protect their communities from these impacts. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's a start. A lot, a lot to unpack for <laughs> sure. Um, it, it's such an intimidating and large topic. You know, the average person, you get thrown stats at you, you get thrown all these numbers, two degrees warming over, you know, all these years and different timelines and things, but how, how do you parse through everything without overwhelming folks and what actions can be taken um, to mitigate some of these some of these issues and then sort of a follow-up question how are you specifically engaging with communities to educate people on climate and uh, maybe we'll start with you Ron well certainly I think that uh, you know in terms of um, eco anxiety and um, uh, climate anxiety it's really important to um, I think focus people on what they what they can do right because um, no one person can solve the problem obviously it's it's a collective effort that's required so certainly what can you do at home what can you do in regard to transporting yourself um, you know and and also you can you can get involved in organizations that are working to uh, provide solutions um, you can write letters to uh, your elected officials um, there's many th actions that people can take depending on on how much time and energy they have available but certainly there's something for everybody and uh, we really like to focus uh, our communications and our approach on solutions and and hope because I think that if people don't feel hopeful and they don't feel there's a solution or um, then they're just going to become paralyzed with fear and perhaps do nothing at all exactly. and um, so that's that's a big part of our work yeah um, it seems like that's the ultimate challenge of our generation really is to try to make people under or help people to understand that it's not uh, up to the corporations solely it's not up to individuals solely but like we're all in this together and like that's such a hard thing to unite everyone um julia simone you kind of have a an additional layer of things because you're reporting on all of these things but you're also probably educating a lot of the folks that you are interviewing and and talking to so like what are those conversations looking like right now and how, what are what are people saying when it comes to sort of the uh when, when the onus is put on them to try to fix things or, or improve things when it seems like such a steep hill to climb? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think as much as, 
you know, I try to educate people with the work that I do. I think the people that I talk to educate me just as much because a lot of these solutions, you know, as we as we're saying, you know, it, it's hard to sort of wrap your head around the the huge big picture, and it looks really complicated when you sort of try and bring industry and individual actions and all of this together. But on the very individual or even very local sort of community level, there are things that that people can do and are doing. Uh, you know, I, I I talk to my sources about you know, what they say to people or how they try to cut through the noise, these these cycles. And, you know, their answers are often, you know, they've been in the industry far longer than me, and their answers are often, you know, th- the solutions are the same as they've always been. Mm. We can use less. We can reduce our consumption, whether that's picking new modes of transportation, whether that's, you know, finding a way to upgrade our appliances, wh- whether that's, you know, encouraging governments to make policy decisions that that focus on on reducing our consumption of of resources writ large and we can emphasize taking care of our natural environment um and i think all of the things that ron mentioned all of those concrete actions you know they're things that the people i talk to are already doing on on a community level and they're passionate about the things happening in their neighborhoods in their backyards and just tapping into that, that very, you know, tangible happening in your neighborhood, in your environment, uh, tapping into to those things can really bring a lot of hope and a lot of focus on what solutions might be. Yeah, absolutely. Marshall, uh, over to you now. The indigenous ways of knowing have been stewarding the land for millennia. Um, there are solutions out there, as we've all already kind of said. So what are some of the solutions that you're seeing and how do we um, extrapolate that to the greater uh, population? You know, like there are pockets of individuals that are doing certain things that are sustainable and, and, and long lasting. But how do we um, help get that mindset into all citizens instead of just uh, the few right now? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and to be honest, the more public outreach honestly isn't really something that I do too much of, mm. um, or nature at least in Manitoba has been too involved in. Um, a lot of what we do is working with, uh, with partners who are interested in this work. Specifically with my work, it's with indigenous communities um, in the north. Um, and some of the stuff we do there is really providing resources, information, support, so that these communities can you know, have the capacity they need to plan for their territories as they see fit. Um, that includes bringing in community members to to be involved in community-led processes for planning for their lands. Um, it allows people to come together to, to form visions of what they see happening on their lands. Um, within those, I think that climate change can be identified as, as a concern and something to work on and then plans can be developed for how to do that. So in that sense, I think that's a great way to kind of cut down on the overwhelm of these these situations right. is when you start parsing out and saying, okay, here's what the actual issue is, here's what's happening here, here's what we can do about that. It's it's easier than saying, how do we just solve climate change? Right. And I mean, that's one side of our work is it's the Indigenous-led conservation, which I really focus on. But we also, the other big side of Nature United's work is on natural climate solutions, mm. um, which is, you know, I think a, a term that's growing in, in popularity and, and awareness, but basically using nature to help mitigate climate change and, and emissions. Um, 
And that can be all sorts of things. I think what most people think of as planting trees, but it can involve things like agriculture, uh, preserving wetlands, Mm -hmm. all sorts of things, uh, basically better management of the environment. Um, And so that's another area that we work on is working with other groups who are interested in this work and providing them with resources. So we prepared a couple years ago a large study on natural climate solutions where uh, we kind of quantified what the opportunities are in different areas, what the costs for the different opportunities are, and that's uh, you know, a resource that organizations can use to look at and say, okay, I'm, I'm here, these are the opportunities here, these are the costs, what can I do? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think uh, that's, that's really what we've focused on is kind of uh, working with and supporting people who are in, interested in this. I wanna dig a little bit more into the micro and macro of it because what is true for rural Manitoba may not be true for northern BC, may not be true for, you know, Iqaluit or wherever. wherever. Everywhere is a little bit different, but are there some universalities that we can sort of speak generally to everyone? Or do you have to be hyper-focused, listen to the locals and focus on their individual cases? Or maybe I'll start with you, Ron, on that one. Certainly from a policy perspective, um, I think all Canadians uh, need to be focused on um, the the protection of nature. Um, Nature is one-third of the climate solution. Protecting it are natural lands and waters. Uh, They absorb carbon from the atmosphere and hold it in the trees and soils and that, you know, if, if those if that carbon is released into the atmosphere, it further exasperates uh, climate change. So um, one of the key issues we've been working on at CPAWS is um, calling on all provincial parties during the election to uh, commit to protecting 30% of Manitoba by 2030, mm-hmm. which is very ambitious. We're currently at 11%, but it is achievable. We've identified the pathway and we've shared that with politicians and um so and certainly I, I echo what I've heard about indigenous leadership. Um, there are many indigenous protected and conserved area quests happening here in Manitoba right now. Uh, indigenous nations are leading the way in terms of conservation by um, embracing um, their traditional values and beliefs and their current beliefs in um, and asserting themselves um, in um, protecting lands and waters that will benefit us all. Uh, you know, in terms of uh, supporting Earth's life support systems that benefit us all and, of course, addressing climate change. So what is the path to doing this? Like, how, what is the, how do we convince, 11% just seems like such a low number, and 30 is, you say it's ambitious, but that's, you know, that seems like not a good mark on a test, you know, if you're only getting 30%, but maybe help me understand why the mindsets of, why this is so difficult to get across and 30% is ambitious when, when uh, you know you would hope for more, right? Um, well, certainly the pathway is there in the sense that um, current initiatives underway by Indigenous nations right now in Manitoba, if all those lands were protected, uh, would add 19 percent. So that'd get us to 30 right there. And of course, it's likely all of those won't be fully realized in, in terms of the, uh, the the full study areas being protected. But on top of that, what there is is uh, something called areas of special interest or candidate protected areas, which have been identified by the province, most of them over 20 years ago. Um, and those add up to be 10.3% of the province. So if you add the indigenous protected areas, uh, as well as the areas of special interest, you it's possible to get over 40%. Mm-hmm. Once again, that all will be fully realized, but it, it certainly paints a picture that 30% is achievable. Doable, right, for sure. 
Uh, Julia Simone, what are you seeing on the ground floor when you're speaking with people about some of these, especially on the now that the campaign is fully in swing and we're and we're into it now? Um, how are individuals uh, talking to you about what their concerns are and their optimism slash pessimism for for this for these conversations? What are what are what are the ground floor humans saying? You know, that's a good question. I think ground floor people are paying attention to these sort of big scale solutions. Like I spend a lot of time talking about the 30 by 30 initiative. I was speaking to uh, folks with the Seal River Watershed Alliance, which is one of those indigenous led protected areas that, uh, that we're just talking about that would add 50,000 square kilometers to our you know protected areas network um, and their community members are just absolutely strengthened and encouraged by this proposal it's 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 bringing community together it's exciting um, I think you know Winnipeggers are asking for you know better access to public transit things that can make you know better access to bike networks things that can make relying less on a car uh, doable which helps to reduce our, our greenhouse gas emissions. You know, Manitoba is the only, one of only two provinces to see its greenhouse gas emissions rise over mm. the last, you know, decade or so. Um, and Manitobans want to contribute to the change, but it, it requires policy. It requires um, governments stepping in and saying, okay, you know, we're going to fund conservation. We're going to fund public transit, active transit. Uh, and I think on the ground level, people are, are interested in that and they're asking for that. It is reassuring and hearing the conversations and hearing and reading all of your articles and just seeing the quotes and the, th you know, the things that people are now focusing on, especially we talked about the youth and how that's yeah. very high on the priority list. Um, Marsha, what are you seeing when you're speaking with some of these indigenous communities and the youth leadership in them? Uh, is that, are they, do they tend to be the ones that are leading the way and starting these conversations and trying to hold, uh, hold the rest of us accountable or, or what are you seeing on the ground floor as well? Well, everything depends on a community right. by community basis. Absolutely. Um, but absolutely I've seen, uh, you know, youth in the communities that are concerned about the future that are concerned about not only the, the environment and the way some people say in Winnipeg might think about it, but the, their territories that they use to get out to and they use to harvest and practice their traditional practices um, as well as their economic well-being and I think that's an important thing to point out is that there's often a, a feeling that it's it's either the economy or the environment and I think that's part of the, the thinking that we need to, to change is that uh, the two can go together and they have to go together uh, to move forward but yeah absolutely they're you know, there's a lot of interest in, in you know, protected areas. Um, a lot of communities want to conserve their lands. And, and really, I think it has a lot to do with, um, you know, giving authority of these lands to a degree back to the communities um, so that they can decide what happens on the lands. Um, because, again, they're the ones who are going to know how to manage those lands mm -hmm. better than anyone else. And uh, for me, I think a, a major thing that is needed there is, and like I said before, we're getting more of this, but there needs to be more capacity in terms of, of even just funding um, creating a protected area isn't just like you'd, you'd see you draw a line on the map and say let's protect it it's there's a 
there's a long planning process required that uses a lot of funds and a lot of uh, energy. Um, and part of the reason for that is because the history of protected areas uh, has been pretty dark. Um, they haven't always, and I would say they mostly <laughs> have been uh, established in fairly negative ways that don't really take into account the uh, the concerns uh, or priorities of Indigenous communities. And so it's really important nowadays as these are being established that there is a, you know, a robust process to ensure that as they're being established, they are being done so in a way uh, that is in line with uh, the community's needs. Right, maybe reforming some of those systems that were established at a time that didn't take into consideration the needs of the people that it was um, put in place to <laughs> govern uh, over, yeah. So let's talk, yeah. let's talk brass tacks, let's talk solutions. Um, how do we have converse, what questions should we be asking politicians about the environment? And how do you speak to people like that may not have the um, perspectives or the context that more uh, educated people do on the on the topics because the severity differs with every single situation, like you said, every single community. So, like, how can climate change be discussed in a nonpartisan way to reach across political lines within all of your communities and the broader Manitoba community as well? Who wants to start with this one? Ron, go ahead. Well, that's an interesting one. It's a, it's a big can of worms. Um, certainly, um, different parties and different elected officials have different perspectives and ideas on, on how to approach things. They're juggling a lot of priorities, obviously. Um, so certainly one of the things that we often express to political parties is this is bigger than politics. Mm. This crosses party lines. This is an existential crisis. We all mm. need to get together and get our act together on this. And um, um, and what we try to do often, if we're proposing a certain environmental solution or a conservation solution to a government, let's say we're, we're trying to establish a new park or a new protected area with indigenous partners, what we try to do is connect the dots for them in the sense that, you know, all political parties um, will say something about protecting nature in one form or another. They'll talk about protecting wildlife, endangered and threatened species in one regard or another. They'll talk about economics, they'll talk about reconciliation, <clears throat> and they'll make some commitments toward those things in some way or another. So what you can do is you can say, okay, we, we'd like to see this area protected, and with your support and um, with your agreement, it checks these boxes for you. Um, you preserve this natural area that helps fulfill your commitment towards nature. Uh, <clears throat> economic objectives as well. You know, this, area, um, this protected area is um, the indigenous nations involved. Uh, for example, in, in one case might be that they are looking at sustainable tourism opportunities there and, and the protected areas are the platform or the foundation for that. So that gives them, you know, the government a checkbox there. Economic development, <laughs> reconciliation, that's a big one in terms of working with First Nations. Um, you know, if, if an area is being proposed by an indigenous nation, the government agrees to that, works effectively with them and achieves a desirable outcome, that is an act of reconciliation and that's another check mark they can make and it goes on and on in, in that regard so just try to connect say by doing this one action it ticks all these boxes for you and um helps to helps you to fulfill your mandate yeah there's a lot of conversation a lot of promises being made how how um a, a big part of journalism is holding power to account how can that how can your work help to if people are making promises and saying they're going to do things over their over their um, governing period, how do we hold them to account and make sure that those things are actually happening? Julia Simone. <laughs> Big question. Um, something we ask ourselves in the industry, I think, all the time. Um, 
you know, I think I think coming back to the promises, drilling down on them uh, is really important. I think moving beyond, you know, governments say a lot of really nice things, as Ron was just saying, uh, things that they'll, they promise they'll do, but I think couched in those statements is often, um, how do I want to frame this, I guess? Um, <laughs> You know, you, you see, the proof is in the pudding, right? Like, you see what uh, what governments are actually putting into place, and you see when those things don't line up with what the the commitments are supposed to be, and I think calling attention to that, um, something I've been working on the last little while that we'll uh, be able to see soon is, you know, we're talking about conservation and protected areas, and Manitoba's parks are open to, to mining. There's a ton of mineral exploration in Manitoba Provincial Parks. Uh, even just protecting those is a tangible step towards these goals. And so I think staying alert to what governments are saying, but also what they're actually doing mm -hmm. and calling to attention the gaps between those uh, those things is, a, is an important way to hold power to account. Uh, not just taking their sort of statements at, at face value is, uh, is a very important part of that. And I think, you know, amplifying the voices of community members because they are the on the ground, eyes on the ground, I, I guess I should say, you know, they do see where the gaps are. They do see where their communities are not being um, protected properly and their fears and the things that they notice deserve to be brought to um, to the fore and that's what I that's what I really strive to they do. need to be listened to. Absolutely. Yes, listen. <laughs> uh, Marshall, same sort of question if you want to respond to what we've been talking about a little bit. Just, yeah, how, how can we move the needle in a political system that has its own limitations, obviously, but like what, what, what can we do from your perspective? Yeah, so I mean, I, I think what was just talked about there about, uh, you know, um, helping communities be heard in their concerns, uh, helping amplify their voices in any way we can, I think is really important. But I think also, you know, the political system, in theory, is politicians do what the, the public wants them to do. Um, so <laughs> I think that, uh, you know, Getting the message out to the public is also important. Not that that's something that I really do. Um, but uh, so Nature United is the Canadian affiliate of the Nature Conservancy, a large global conservation organization, not to be confused with Nature Conservancy of Canada, which is different, mm -hmm. which is why we're Nature United in Canada. But that's a whole aside. <laughs> but the Nature Conservancy, or TNC, actually developed uh, this document called uh, Let's Talk Climate Guide. And it just has five basic tips for having conversations with people about climate change specifically. So. You know, when you're meeting with a family member or a friend who is a, is a denier or d disagrees with you or whatever in any way, um, some simple things. So it suggests, you know, meet people where they're at, you know, where, what's important to them and what understanding of the situation do they have. You know, if, if they're just really starting to get into it, starting to talk very, getting to the weeds about all the science isn't really going to help. Um, number two is connection outweighs facts. Um, so you know, not trying to, again, come in and outsmart people with facts, but connect with people, understand where they're coming from, what their concerns are, why they're concerned, and and connect with them on that. Um, and I think that's a really important thing nowadays because I think um, divisiveness doesn't really help anything, particularly when we're dealing with a major crisis like this. And I think one of the big outcomes of the crisis is going to be social. And 
splitting people more and more isn't helping. Um, start with what's happening is, is the third one. So look at what's happening out your back door. We've mm -hmm. talked about this already, forest fires and everything like that. What are people seeing and how is that affecting them personally? Um, so the goal is conversation, not conquest. I think that's important too, is that you're not gonna go and have a discussion with someone and change their mind right there. You talk to them, you start the conversation, maybe you pick it up a month later and they've thought about it a bit more. Um, it's not going in and, and having a battle and trying to convince everyone immediately. Just plant the seeds. Yeah, um, and focus on the person across from you, they say too. So again, you know, we need to understand that these, you know, People you disagree with are people too that have their own reasons for thinking what they're thinking, and, and you can't start dehumanizing people and just focusing on 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 what you want to tell them. Um, yeah, and so I think it's important to approach these conversations with an open mind, listen to perspectives of others, which is how we like to work in H United. Is really going into you know talk to communities, understand what their needs are, and talk to others, understand what's going on, what's important to people, and trying to support them in that. Um, like. It, was mentioned, climate change impacts everyone. I think it's pretty easy to connect on that more and more so as we see what's going on. Um, look for the shared priorities, including regional priorities and what, what opportunities there are there. Um, I think it's important to connect challenges that you talk to with people with solutions um, so that it's not just this hopeless conversation. And also with the associated benefits. So. You know, working on mitigation of climate change also helps helps with species at risk. It helps with with uh, the economy. It helps with social situations. Helps with everything. Um, again, the idea of environment versus economy. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of folks will will say we can't do X Y Z in an environmental manner because that's going to be bad for the economy or whatever. It's going right. to cost too much. And I, I think that's a that's a way of thinking that has to be changed. And also recognizing, I think, what drives people connected to that in that I think a lot of people when they would think about something like say oh I can't can't do this because it'll cost too much because I want to retain financial well-being for myself and my family but it's important to recognize that the best thing for <laughs> your family really is to think about the the environmental well-being of the planet you live on and then in the long run that's really gonna help more yeah no um yeah, sorry, those some thoughts. No, there. incredible. Yeah, that's a great list of things. I want to I want to pivot a little bit and talk about um, verbiage and language because um, it's evolved over the year. You know, climate change, global warming. I've heard climate catastrophe thrown out there. Maybe I'll start with you, Julia Simone, about like, does the language we're using matter? Obviously, the answer is yes. But like, how and what are some of the ways that you've seen the language evolve over the last few years? Just to try to either. On, on one end of the spectrum, obfuscate and maybe like confuse people and make, oh, it's not that bad, it's just whatever, or versus trying to use words that actually um, get across the point of this is an emergency, this is a catastrophe or, or whatever. Yeah, I'm just curious your, your perspective. Hmm, that's, a, that's a really good question. Um, yeah, I think that we have started to sort of pick terms that are accessible, right? Like climate change as opposed to global warming. Climate change reflects, I think, a more maybe accurate picture of what's going on because global warming invites a sort of, uh, oh, well, the planet has always warmed and cooled, which is a common sort of rebuttal, right? Um, so climate change can encompass this more drastic change in, in everything that we're seeing. Um, you know, we've 
stopped in some cases using greenhouse gas emissions in favor of carbon pollution. It's a little bit more accessible. It's a little bit more straightforward. Um, I think part of it is is just sort of making these topics relatable. Like I, I loved everything that Marshall was just saying because you know I think getting across party lines, getting you know getting people engaged on this issue who maybe feel differently, it is about that relatability. It is about um, you know the fact that our, our fears and our concerns are are very similar. You know, very different people. We all have very similar motivations, and you really drill down into it. And so, I think picking language that touches on on those. I think now I I can't remember all of the details of this one, but the idea of a, a just transition and the language around what a just transition means. Um, I, I think that term is starting to change as well. Mm-hmm. I would have to look at my notes a little <laughs> bit more to remember what we're what we're switching to and I don't know if maybe Ron knows what other language has been used but um, you know these terms as they get politicized I think just transition is an example of one that was very politicized you sort of start to try and pick other terminology right. that steers us away from the divisive realm and into the realm that's more uniting and that touches on those common anxieties those shared um, frustrations or fears or, or hopes, uh, and I think that's I think that's the biggest way I've seen the language start to change. Yeah. So thirty years in this world, having these conversations, how have, Ron? How have you seen the the discourse change? Like, are people still saying the same things? What, what were people saying thirty years ago? What was the what were the conversations like? Well, thirty years ago, climate change was very much a uh, abstract concept uh, that people were just starting to wrap their heads around, and and um, at that time, there certainly wasn't the um, scientific consensus that we see today, mm-hmm. largely because a lot of the studies hadn't been done and a lot of people hadn't been focused on it. So now we're seeing with this increased knowledge and this consensus that um, you know it's certainly uh, an issue uh, <laughs> to say the very least say the very least we need to address <laughs> and we need to address it in a very serious way but um, you know it's, it's interesting just uh, riffing off a little bit about uh, what Julia Simone was saying just talking about and what you're mentioning as well negative versus p- positive language it's, it's a really tricky dance yeah. in the sense that and always evolving too, <clears throat> always changing always evolving and and, and that um, you know the, the polling uh, and um, uh, psychology all points to the fact that um, if the language is about someone having something to lose rather than having something to gain mm-hmm. it's more impactful in terms of inspiring action okay. so often people are far more concerned with what they might have to lose and therefore might be inspired to do something about I think what's really happened over the last 30 years in a way that's amazing is the public demand for um, action on climate, action on environmental degradation has grown huge. And that's very, very important, and I can't uh, overstate that enough in the sense that a big part of what we do at CPAWS is try to create the public demand um, for elected officials to make the right decisions in terms of our environment and climate. And they have a lot of juggling priorities. They can't do everything, so we need to help them make it a priority. Yes, no kidding. So let's uh, pivot to final thoughts. Um, are there any sort of final threads that are sticking out that you guys want to touch on one more time or anything you want to unpack a little more? Or what can we leave our listeners with? Uh, hopefully something hopeful, but if it, if it has to be you know, more about what they're going to lose, potentially, <laughs> uh, what can that be? So maybe, uh, Marshall, I'll go to you first for final thoughts. Uh, 
Sure. Um, and I mean, something just connecting to that, that last question, too, about, uh, about you know, terminology and, and the words we're using. I, I think an important thing there is also to, to try to make things more, more relatable and, and tangible. And that's we don't always need to just broadly talk about climate change, but also really focus in on the, 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 the issues that people are, are seeing on the land and the, the experiencing and experiences and the, the stories they have of what's mm. happening. Um, as well as changing, I think that uh, changing terms can also help change mindsets, changing the way we, we, we speak about things. So, for instance, something I hear a lot in communities we work with is, is you know, traditionally talk about land use or land management and how that's not really the way a lot of these communities want to talk about it anymore, rather looking at things like land relationship. Um, instead of talking about resources or natural resources, you know, these aren't just things for us to take and use, but you know, they're they're our relations, really. Uh, they're, they're exactly ancestors. So I think there's there's a lot of opportunity for changing the way we speak about things to change our mindsets, and and that's something that that can be you know shared more broadly. Um, and I guess yeah, one like thinking about this, I guess something that that you know when you're going back to the question about being overwhelmed. Uh, by it. Uh, I think something that really kind of sort of comforts me in this whole world is that climate change, while it can be quite complex, is not this mystery. Um, we understand what's going on, we understand what solutions are, and there's a lot of people working on it. Granted, there could always be more support, there could always be more resources going there towards it, but, um, you know, it's not some mysterious thing and it's not something that individuals necessarily have to internalize that burden not saying that individual actions aren't important um, but there's a lot of other people working on this um, and it's not for every single person to have to wake up every morning full of anxiety thinking oh lord what can I do to save the world today um, yeah so I think I think what's important is supporting those who are doing the work um, you know that can be financial, with your time. It can even just be sharing information with other mm. people, uh, supporting and promoting ideas, and of course, voting consciously. Boom. Um, so yeah. <laughs> well said. Ron, <clears throat> final thoughts from you as well. <clears throat> yeah, I think it's, um, you know, in terms of uh, not feeling overwhelmed, it can be very overwhelming to think about climate change and the environment and how do we solve all these very pressing issues. And um, I think it's really important uh, for people to you know, we've seen the campaign about consider climate uh, in all policy decisions all the time. And I look forward and I hope there's a day when, because, you know, now what we're seeing, of course, is youth in school from K to 12, they're learning about climate change. They're learning about the environment. And um, hopefully they're learning about solutions as well. And when they become our future leaders, hopefully they will look, look through at everything through a climate and an environment lens. Um, because if they do, we'll make far better decisions. Um, you know, there's just so many ways that um, we can apply the climate and environment lens to so many decisions that we make, and that's just not happening on a large scale right now with, with governments and, and, and individuals, frankly. So I think as individuals, what we can do is try our best to train ourselves to think through a climate lens and an environment lens when we make our decisions, whether it's in transport or, or what we do at home, our purchasing decisions, and do the things that you can do. And um, it also help to spread the word and uh, support organizations that are, that are working hard, fighting on the front lines on this. Yeah, baby steps, one thing at a time. <laughs> it's not going to be fixed tomorrow, but you can 
take one step towards the right direction. Uh, Julie Simone, final word to you. Yeah, I think you know to to continue off of, of what these two have just been saying. You know, we we did sort of shift in in culture from talking about climate change as this very individual solutions um, or the solutions to climate change being very individual focused. So like the reduce, reuse, recycle campaigns, the the save the ozone stuff. You know, we shifted from that framing to this focus on on industries and governments and the power that they have to influence you know the direction uh, that we move in as a planet but the individual elements are are still just even from a sort of personal hope you know being a young person seeing where things are going from just a sort of personal strength and hope perspective the individual actions are are so helpful and I think something that comes up in conversations that I have a lot is that you know people Manitobans people in general they want to do the right things. They want to make the right choices. You know, no one is, um, no one is waking up thinking, how can I make the planet worse today either, right? And I think having access to these sort of small-scale solutions, having examples, uh, friends, neighbors, family members who are, you know, doing these these small things. I, I started composting in my backyard this year because I learned how. And it's been just a little private sort of encouragement in the day-to-day that, you know, there are things you can wake up and do that make things just a, a touch better. Um, something that I also, I guess, wanted to touch on before we, before we wrap up is this idea of the, of the environment-first economy. I think that that's mm. so important because we are in financially turbulent times, um, and I think people often see the environment as in opposition to um, a healthy economy, and that's that's not the case. There is increasing data, increasing research around the economic benefits of taking care of this planet beyond, you know, not even looking at the very, very long-term future, but in, in the day-to-day, you know, your energy bills, you can save a ton of money on energy bills with, by making those little choices that, you know, provide more efficiency. Um, there are... There are a lot of ways that protecting the environment protects everything that we care about, our, our financial security, our, our health, our well-being socially, our mental health. Mm. All of those things are deeply connected to, to the land that we are in constant relationship with. Yeah, we keep the world healthy. Hopefully we can keep ourselves healthy. Uh, Julie Simone Rutgers from the Winnipeg Free Press and The Normal, thank you for your time. Ron Thiessen from CPAWS uh, and Marsha Birch from Nature United, thank you so much for your insights, your wisdom, your expertise on these subjects. Really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Thank, thank you. you.